0: Christ now as we head into chapter number 11 we're really going to see three truths okay we're just going to start introducing it today but by the time we finish you should readily recognize all three of these truths truth number one God's rejection of Israel is not total rejection it's partial rejection You I don't even know what that means hey the Jews by and large are not coming to Christ. And God's rejection of Israel is not total. It's not all of them. It's partial. Right now, it's a large part, but it is partial. And that's biblical. And you'll see that as we head further in the next few weeks. Second truth is this. God's partial rejection of Israel, this is key, is not final. It is temporary. Now, as we move forward, I don't want to give away the coming verses in the next few weeks. But I hope no one hears that and says, okay, wait a minute. God's partial rejection of Israel is not final, it's temporary. So that, does that mean all the Jews who've rejected Christ and that are in judgment and punishment right now, they're going to get out? That is not what that means. But the takeaway, what we should, the third thought taken away from chapter 11 as we work our way through it should be this. Here's what we learn. God's word Still stands. God's promises are still true. Everything God promised Abraham, all that was intended, everything is right on track. Nothing's to be alarmed at. Nothing's happening that God did not not foresee. God still, this is a key. By the way, there's big debate. I'm not going into it right now. I want to study this out further for myself. Big debate over, does God have a plan for Israel still or is the church everything, we're covering all the bases that God intended for Israel, or is there a plan that has the church and Jews in the church, but also there's still this other plan that God has for the Jews in the coming time as Christ returns, and I lean toward the latter of those. Now with that in mind, would you look with me at verse number 1? We're going to read verse 10 verses this morning. Romans chapter 11, new chapter, here we go. Remember, he's just read verse 21 or written verse 21. God stands all day long with his arms out, open hands, but it's to a disobedient contrary people. So here's Paul's questions. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, is Paul's answer. For I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham. A member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Read that line again. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You say, well, that sounds like the verse you read a while ago. And then he continues. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he... Elijah, appeals to God against Israel. Literally, Elijah prayed something like this, verse 3. Here's Elijah. Lord, they have killed your... is Israel, his own nation. They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. The Lord, just just updating you where where things stand. (laughs) It's really, really bad. Verse 4. But what is God's reply to him, to Elijah? And here's what God says. God says, I have kept, notice, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're wrong. Now Paul comes back to his argument, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, Chosen by grace. So now Paul steps back and makes some conclusions. What then? Here's the what then. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They failed to obtain what they were seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Hardened. Israel failed, the elect obtained, the rest, they're not in the elect, were hardened. As it is written, he's going to pull in Bible. Actually combines two verses for verse 8. Here's what the Bible, here's what Paul says. Quote, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And it's not only Isaiah and Deuteronomy, verse 9. Psalm 69, he pulls in, Paul writes, And David says, quote, Let their table become a snare and a trap. What? This is a prayer? This is the prayer. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What kind of prayer is that? All right, now this is where I'm going to go sit down and y'all are going to come up and preach that text, right? Uh, And I already know, some of you that haven't read ahead, y'all came and thought, oh boy, here we go again. Thought we were done with that. Hang on, I think today will be the last concentrated version of some of this, but it won't be the entire message. Would you notice three things with me out of this text this morning? Three things. Is God going to, Has he rejected his people? Number one, God's election, I'm only pulling words right out of the text, God's election guarantees a remnant. This is important. This is kind of, point one, I'm not going to spend long on it. It's kind of the main point, and the other two points are going to split that in half and deal with both parts of that. God's election guarantees a remnant. There will be a remnant in the nation of Israel. Look back if you would, verse number one. Paul asks a serious question, an honest question, based off of verse 21 of the previous chapter. Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Listen carefully. There's two ways of this word rejection. There's two ideas, and... The one that's used here is the second one. Watch, here's the first one. You offer me a plate of food, right? You offer me a plate of food. But I put my hands out and I say, no thank you. I have rejected the food. That's one type of rejection. Here's the second kind. You offer me a plate of food, I accept the plate of food. I even put, Bite in my mouth. I even start like how good it is, but before I swallow the food, I spew it out. You see that? That's different. First one, oh no, thank you. I don't want any of that. The second one, I've taken it in. I've literally put it in my mouth and then I spew it out. You want to know which one Paul's asking? Has God rejected his people? We know God has not done that. Oh no, I don't want them. We know that God's already taken them. Literally, it's the idea he's put them in his mouth and now it's spitting out the nation. So here's Paul's question. In light of verse 21 the previous chapter, where God stands all day long with his arms out, but they're disobedient, stubborn, and they reject him, does that mean God is spewing out, spitting out, rejecting, once and for all, all of the nation of Israel, to which Paul answers, by no means. No, God has not rejected all of Israel for all time. By no means. Why? Flip back to chapter 9 very quickly. Back to chapter 9. Verse 27, these 9 and 11 are very connected. Chapter 10 was so we don't get misguided in our understanding of sovereignty of God. He interjects how we've got to be evangelistic and mission-minded and prayerful and burdened and how salvation is by faith in Christ. All of that is right in there sandwiched between these two. Now, but going back to chapter 9, look at verse 27. Paul appeals to the scripture. He says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. This is the Bible, watch this. Isaiah says, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, hey, there's many, many, wow, there's millions and millions and millions of them, only a remnant of them will be saved. It's God's word. Is there all along. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's not that Sodom and Gomorrah, I know they were vile and wicked, but Israel's done plenty to be in the same category. God could have wiped them all out. Guys, it is amazing. Study ancient civilizations, and you find this one that just keeps hanging around. How do they keep hanging around? God has a plan for the nation of Israel. He has not spewed them all out permanently. So Paul's answer... Oh, no, there will always be a remnant. You know why? Because God's election of them has guaranteed there will always be a remnant. Point number two as we go back to chapter 11. Let's keep moving. Point two this morning. Scriptural proofs of a remnant. Are there scriptural proofs of a remnant? Paul's going to offer three. You see it in your handout? It's almost like Paul's a lawyer, and he says, yes, yes. There's going to be a remnant. I have proof for you there's going to always be a remnant. He has exhibit A, exhibit B, and exhibit C. What's exhibit A? Paul himself. Do we really, can we really know for sure, Paul, that God has not spit Israel out permanently, the whole nation? No, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm of, I'm of Abraham. I'm one of his descendants. I have his blood in me. In fact, I can tell you which tribe I'm from. I'm one of the foremost tribes. If you were to ask me, I would say at that time period, you're talking about Judah and Benjamin and, of course, the Levites down at the temple. The dispersion had already started to affect. Not many, but we're coming back. But Paul knows his lineage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. It's one of the main, main tribes. Yes, I'm a Jew. I'm an example. Now, listen. This is important. I'm going to propose to you, if ever there was a Jew, an Israelite, who did not deserve to be saved, it is Paul who we know as Paul the Apostle, who was first known by his Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman name. It was there all along. But he goes by his Hebrew name, Saul of Tarsus. That man of himself did not deserve to be saved. In fact, I would put him at the bottom of the list, all maybe the other Jews way ahead of him, and Paul would say, that is absolutely true. If anyone deserved not to be saved, it is me. Hold your spot. Look over at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We were going to look at this Wednesday night. We didn't get to it. First Timothy chapter 1. Why would you say this about Paul, Jeff? Verse 12. Paul says, now that he's an apostle, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I am thankful God lets me be an apostle. That's what he means. Verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, An insolent opponent. Literally an arrogant, rude, ruthless. Look at verse 13 again. Formerly, I was... You say, Jeff, why would you say, if any Jew deserved not to, it would be Saul of Tarsus, Paul. Why would you say that? He tells you right there, I was a blasphemer. Watch this, it's so important. God, who Saul has all this zeal for, and studies his book, God becomes a man. God really does become a man. And Paul says, you're not God. Blasphemes God because blaspheming Christ is blaspheming God. And then he says, I was a persecutor. He persecutes Christ. I believe Saul of Tarsus was there with the Sanhedrin. I don't know that he was on the Sanhedrin, but he's one of the young guys, man. He's an up-and-comer. He's a star. I'm sure he's involved in all that, what's going on in Jerusalem during the Passion Week, and so he's there as part of it. But even after that, Paul persecutes Jesus Christ by persecuting his people. I'm an insolent man. I was a blasphemer, and I was a persecutor. Now watch what he says, verse 14. And the Verse In the middle of 13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, watch this, overflowed for me. It took a lot for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 is key. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so I would offer to you this morning, if any Jew deserved not to be saved, it's Saul of Tarsus for his blasphemy, persecution, and insolence. And yet God, if you want to write it down, converted him in what I believe pure grace method. You say, Jeff, what do you mean by pure grace? I challenge you, I couldn't put it in your text. I wanted to give some references today. I didn't have room. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Go read Paul's conversion. Here's what happens. This is amazing. Watch this. He's going along. Watch. Jesus Christ comes on him. It is pure grace. Jesus Christ comes on him. Jesus Christ reveals himself to him Jesus Christ speaks to him Jesus Christ saves him that's pure grace you're like oh wow that is amazing I've read that story before right there really in in a physical world he gets blinded he sees Christ he hears a real voice he's having an audible out loud guys with him they hear the noise they don't really know the words he hears the exact word. that was amazing hey guys same thing happened to me in 1979 pure simple grace conversion happened to me You're like, get out, really? God came over you and blinded you and you heard a voice. I didn't hear it out loud and I didn't see Christ, but here's what happened he came on me, he spoke to me, he revealed himself to me and he saved me. Really what you'll find here, this is a grace conversion. I know Paul believed in Jesus Christ, but it was so much God's conversion of him, you don't even find Paul's faith, though we know it's there. You don't even find it in any of those texts, so much so that a lot of the scholars have wondered, now did he get saved here? Did he get saved here? Did he get saved here? It was a grace conversion all the way through. Happened to me in 1979. Back to Romans 11. Scriptural proofs of a remnant. remnant. Exhibit A is Paul himself. Exhibit B is the events of the life of Elijah. I'm not going to spend long here. But I've wondered, Paul, why are you using this time period? Of all the time periods of Israel's history, you're trying to prove that there's a remnant, has been a remnant, always will be a remnant who believe... And he pulls out this one time period, I believe, because maybe this was about as low a point in Israel as there could be or maybe this was the lowest point and he uses this as his example. You say, how bad was it? Maybe Ahab was the worst king in the history of Israel and there's also another guy named Manasseh. I'm pretty sure it's between those two guys. Manasseh might have been worse because he took Ahab's and went further and further. You all heard about Ahab? Ahab, you remember his wife, lovely lady, you remember her name? Good old Jezebel, you say, I, that's the first time I've ever been to church in my life. I've never heard of Ahab. I have heard of Jezebel. Some ladies on some threads call each other that every now and then on, on the internet. And they're like, okay, I've heard of her. Yeah, it's not a compliment. All right. Ahab and Jezebel. You say, how bad was it? Watch. Ahab not only did, as king, did not lead Israel to worship Jehovah God. He didn't do it's Not only did he not do that. It got worse. Not only did he not worship Jehovah God, he actually led the people to worshiping Baal, but it got worse. He is now going to, as the text says, look with me in fact, let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 2 God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. It got so bad that Ahab literally and Jezebel are killing the prophets of God. They have demolished your altars. They're like getting rid of any semblance of worship of Jehovah, the I am Yahweh God. They're getting rid of all of that. So verse 3 continues. They demolished your altar and I am alone and left and they seek my life. Guys, let this sink in. It was so bad that Elijah, even though he has this victory over the prophets of Baal, he then flees for his life because he knows Jezebel is more than ever now going to, after his life going to have him killed. And he hits this point and he gets so depressed he honestly has a conversation with God. God, I don't know if you know this, I am literally the last one. God, if I die, it's done, it's over. I'm probably the last man on the whole planet who has faith in you. And God says, whoa, 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 you're wrong. It is bad. I've got, I have kept. It's not that they've kept themselves. It's not that you've kept yourself. I have kept 7,000 who've never bowed the knee. You're not alone. There's a remnant. Then verse... 5, exhibit C, is all believing Jews throughout time. Verse 5, Paul says so too. At the present time, there is a remnant. Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's not spit all of us out. I'm a Jew. I'm saved. I believe in Christ. Yes, it got bad in in Elijah's day, but there was always a remnant. There's always going to be a remnant. Hey, real quick. I think I've already said it today. I've probably said it eight or nine times in our series. Who remembers what year Paul wrote the book of Romans, A.D. 56, roughly. That's pretty close, really, they can tell. You say, I don't know why that's important. Hold your spot. Go with me if you would. Acts chapter 21. Go to Acts chapter 21. I say that, again, that's important. Here's why. Because... Paul writes the book of Romans while he's on the third missionary journey. As he's wrapping up the third missionary journey, remember he's collecting a collection, money collection, and he's going to take it back to Israel. There's some poor saints who've put their faith in Christ and they're suffering financially. He arrives in Jerusalem with the love offering, and Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is with them and says, Hey, when we arrived in Jerusalem, Paul and us and we all we met with the church, going to give an update. That's what missionaries do. Look at verse 17. So Paul's point is, I'm a Jew. I'm part of the remnant. It got really low in in Elijah's time, but there was a remnant. And by the way, there's all those who are putting their faith in Christ even now, even in the present day. Is that true? The next year after Paul writes this, he's coming home from the he writes Romans on the third missionary journey. Here he comes home from the missionary journey, and now he's in Jerusalem. Look at chapter Acts 21, 17. Luke says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Hey, good to have you guys. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James is the Lord's half-brother. He's kind of the leading pastor there in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. Hey, what are they going to do? What are they going to talk about? After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Recapped maybe the first, second, and third missionary journey, but especially the third missionary journey. Here's what God's been doing. Oh, it's great. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Praise the Lord for what he's doing among the Gentiles. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law. Catch that. Paul comes in, having written Romans 9 and 10 and 11, and he already knows, he's saying there is a remnant. He gets to Jerusalem, and James, the local pastor, says, Do you realize how many thousands of us are trusting in Christ? And then he gives Paul some advice. Uh, I'll just tell you real quick. Paul... These Jews around here, they, they trust Christ, but they're very zealous for the Old Testament law. They want to really keep the laws too. They haven't stopped being Jewish and they really were saved. You know, they hear that you're polluting and perverting the Gentiles out there and you're even telling Jews to stop being Jewish. We think it would be a great idea if you would go take some sacrifices and some offerings and go with these guys over here. We've got four guys and you actually pay for their offerings and so everybody will see you're still off for the Jewish thing. And Paul plays along and... While in the temple, the Jewish mob starts beating him up, trying to be Jewish for him. And he gets beat up. Did you catch what James says? There's thousands of us Jews, Messianic Jews. Number three, as we make our way back to Romans. Third point this morning so number one, God's election guarantees there will be a remnant, guarantees it, God's elected. Number two, scriptural proofs of a remnant, Paul, Elijah's day, believing Christians throughout time. And then point three this morning, scriptural proofs of election. Scriptural proofs of election. Uh, as I said earlier, I think, I can't guarantee, but I'm pretty sure this should be the last heavy dose of this. So Jeff, why do you say that? Are you saying that apologetically? No, no. <laughs> Uh, Can I tell y'all, I started preaching on this as we were going through Romans. We hit chapter 8, verse 29, back on October 29th, four months ago. uh, Thursday will be four months ago, right? Do y'all know how many conversations I've had about this topic since then? Had it when it came up. I preached the message on the foreknowledge of God. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Preached on it there. Kept working our way through. Hit chapter 9. Quite a few conversations. I've literally had dozens. This is not to defend Jeff. This is not, oh, poor little Jeff. This is an explanation, okay? At times, I'll go and tell you, those of you that are doing our reading this year, uh, you you probably did Acts 16 on Friday, right? You're doing that. Some of you I know are doing that. Last week you did Acts chapter 11. Do you remember this? Peter in Acts 10 goes into Cornelius' house and Cornelius is a Gentile. And he ends up preaching the gospel to a Gentile. And he doesn't even tell the Gentile you need to become Jewish so you can become a Christian. He just literally says, he starts preaching the gospel. And Cornelius, without becoming a a Jew, goes straight to becoming a Christian. Well, chapter 11, here comes Paul Paul back down to Jerusalem. And he's got some explaining to do. I'm sorry, it says Peter, it's not Paul. You say even Peter had to answer? Even Peter. Hey, hey, Pete, we need to meet with you. Hey, guys, what's going on? You know what we've heard? We heard you went in and ate with some Gentiles. Oh, you heard about that. It's true. Uh, well, uh, guys, there's a, there's a reason. There's an explanation. Paul, or Peter, has to defend himself why he ate and went into a house of Gentiles and why he shared the gospel with them to become a Christian without first becoming a Jew. What in the world are you thinking? Peter is very gentle. Peter's very patient. I, I know why. Because Peter's attitude is, I thought just like you. And he explains to them, the only reason I did it is God made me see a vision on a rooftop Three times, I knew the meaning of it. He finally pounded it into me. And then when I go, I go down from this roof. The Holy Spirit tells me very clearly, go with these guys and go tell their master the gospel. And I get there and they recount God's working on their end. He's working on my end, clear as a bell. I preach the gospel. We see the Holy Spirit. I'm not the only one. I got six witnesses. We see the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's my point. In all of that, you know what, Paul, what Peter says? Acts eleven seventeen. here's Peter's answer. What were you doing? What are you thinking? Here's his answer. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? I'm like you. I believe like you till God worked me over. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? I say that for this reason. As we get ready to look at our third point, scriptural proofs of election. The Lord knows my heart. I don't want to upset anybody. I am naturally a people pleaser. I want all of you guys to like me. (sighs) I really do. But even more than that, can I say this? I don't want anybody to be upset. And here I mean this. I am not upset with people who see this differently. If you say, Jeff, I'm walking away from today's message. I'm not walking away from the church. But I still believe very differently than you. I'm not upset with you. If you're processing all of this, man, I've been there. If you never get where I am, that's okay. Keep keep praying. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, I'm just serious. Uh, But the Lord knows my heart. Uh, Months ago, before we hit, before four months ago, I must have said something. We had a lady email Renee, and she asked about the pastor and and used a certain word to describe some of this doctrine I don't use. I don't like man-made terms being foisted on biblical doctrines. We don't name doctrines after people because that's where we get squirrely and we don't endorse everything about people. But this was brought up and so it was forwarded to me and I answered back the best. I don't think she ever came back. I'll just be honest with you. I've had dozens of conversations. But I've learned this. These are God's words. I will give an account for how I handle them. I don't want to upset you, but I know this. I would rather upset you than upset God. I really would. You say, Jeff, you really spend a lot of time here. Give me one more moment. I know that in our audience, there are some that if you were here through chapter 9 and you were there back on October 29th, you're probably thinking, can't we just let go on, just kind of move on? Think with me for a second. Be honest. And I know you're you're ready. I get that. What would you really think if I got up here today and I said, hey, guys, listen, uh, Romans 11, 1 through 10 It's really controversial. And and guys, we frankly already covered it already. I don't even know why God put it in there again. We've already covered it. It's really controversial. And here's something else. Lord, I hope you're listening. Hey, guys, there's going to be some people here that's going to find it boring and not relevant. And so if you'll join me in verse 11, we're just going to go right to chapter 11, verse 11, and let's talk about what's going to happen with the Jews in the days to come. Now, your first thought may be, I would be off of that. I will propose to you, in your heart of hearts, you would be very disappointed, not only in me, in the whole process. You would probably say, now, hold on. We've hit every verse, every verse, and we're skipping these 10? We're not skipping these 10. Well, I'm with you, right? So even if you're like, "I I don't like that or I don't understand it, I can't skip it. And so would you join me as we take at least one last look? I don't know. I'm sure to be referred to in lighter ways, but not so much this point. I'll come back to verse 5 and 6. Let's just hit some of these quickly, these, these verses. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Here's what the Bible says. We're going to look at scriptural proofs for election. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Listen. Israel did not fail... To get what it was after, it was after righteousness, it was after salvation, it was after eternal life and a relationship with God. Listen, Israel did not fail for lack of trying. You say, why did they fail? Listen carefully. Israel failed precisely because of their trying. Israel did not trust God. God says, Christ is your righteousness. You put your faith in him. That's all you can do. And they go, we don't want that. We want something much more religious. We love the law. And so they try and they try. And here comes us, country bumpkin, not even looking for Gentiles. And we hear, there's salvation available? We've sinned against you, God. Salvation? Your son died on a cross for me? All I have to do is put my faith in... I'll take it. Meanwhile, over here, the Jews who know all the ins and outs of the Old Testament, they think, that's ridiculous. You're not going to heaven. We're working hard over here, these Jews. Paul says they've missed it. They totally miss it. Not for lack of trying, but for lack of trusting. But look at the second part of the verse. The elect obtained it. The elect elect didn't achieve it. The elect obtained it. But the rest... You say, what is the rest? The non elect, what happened to them? Were hardened. Were hardened. I'm going to wimp out. I'm not going to go into all that. You're like, what's that mean, we're hardened? I'll tell you this it's passive voice. They were hardened. And I know the immediate answer. Right, God hardened them because they hardened their heart first, and that's what He. Okay, that's a version. That's pretty prominent. It's a good version. It's fine. Is there more to it? Now, verse 8. Look down verse 8, 9, 10. Without me yet rereading all of those verses, I believe here's what the Jews would probably say. You know what? No matter how backslidden we get, come on, we're the people of God. Listen we will recognize our Messiah when he comes. Even if we're backslidden, we're going to recognize our Messiah when he comes. And yet Paul, in verse 8, blends. This is strange. Paul does what I do not have permission to do. Paul takes some of a verse in Deuteronomy 29 and some of a verse of Isaiah 29, and he puts it all together to make his point how God is sovereign over salvation as it relates to Israel and really any person's life. And he puts this all together, and here's what he says. And I believe that one of the reasons he does this is to describe what the hardening looks like. So verse 7 says, the elect get it, the rest were hardened. The hardening was done to them. Well, what does that look like? He puts two verses together. Verse 8, look at it. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. How do you teach that? What do you do with that? God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then he describes the hardening. You have a handout. I think that's the reason he gives this, to show what does this hardening look like. Let's write it first and I'll briefly describe them. The hardening, spiritual hardening is this, spiritual drowsiness. It's a stupor. They have a stupor. Spiritual drowsiness, spiritual blindness, and spiritual deafness. You say, what happened to Israel when they were hardened? They had spiritual drowsiness, spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. Hey, guys, before I describe them, I'm going to propose to you that you will see that same hardening among people today. Listen, you might see the same hardening, the evidence of it in this room this morning. It is in the room this morning. You say, what does it look like? It's spiritual drowsiness, it's spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. You say, are you literally talking about drowsiness? It could be. Though I'm not necessarily talking about the night where you got called in and you weren't really expecting, but, boy, you pushed through and you came to to church and, boy, you had to work third shift and you're sitting there and it's like, man, it's nice and warm in here and, and boy, I'm just fighting it off. I'm not talking about when you got a cold and, and you took a couple of pills to help you fight off the head cold and they just hit at the wrong time and in a couple of weeks, man, you're really fighting it. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the week after week after week. When it comes to the things of God, there is just drowsiness. Stupor. He said, "What does it look like?" Here it is. Don't care. Checking out. Distracted. That's what hardness looks like. It's someone who can sit for three hours at a football game and watch it on TV and never miss a beat. It's someone who will watch a movie for two hours. And just be engrossed in it, never distracted. But you bring them to the house of God and something happens. Phone comes out. The phone is much more interesting than how to go to heaven. It's spiritual drowsiness and stupor and it's evidence of the hardness. Hallelujah. You know what you got to do? Wake up! Stop sitting there thinking everything else is much more important. But he preaches for an hour. You do everything else for more than an hour. You'll read page after page after page of the novel... But you can't go a chapter in God's Word. Spiritual drowsiness. Now there's others. Here's others. It's not that they've tuned out. Here's the others. And this is sad. They've tuned in, they're trying, but they're blind and deaf. This is deep. This is deep. Say, so Jeff, what does that mean? Is there anything complicated here? Is there anything complicated? You need a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He's the only way to heaven. If you'll put your faith in Jesus and trust Him, don't add anything to it. Just fall back in the arms of God. Ask Jesus. Claim Him as your Lord. Receive Him as your Savior. If you'll do that, you will go to heaven, and He'll change your life. Nothing complicated there. But they're like, I just need to think about it. I need to evaluate. No, you're being stubborn and disobedient. A child figured it out. Why haven't you? Blindness, deafness, drowsiness. Look at verse 9. David says, So here's a quote from Psalm 69. You say, What's Psalm 69? There's a lot. I read through it this morning. The particular section Paul's going to pull out, I'll tell you what it is. Have you ever heard of these things called imprecatory prayers? This is where you pray cursings on your enemies. David, in Psalm 69, is praying curses on his enemies. But Paul, in the New Testament, a thousand years later, uses Psalm 69... And he uses it as prayers not on David's enemies, but David's descendant, David's special seed, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes from David. his great, 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 think like 14 grandfather, generations. He p- applies, so Paul says, the enemies of Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, yes, it applied in Psalm 69 and 1000 B.C., but it applies even more so who are the enemies of Jesus Christ. What's the prayer? Verse 9. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Maybe it's bending their backs under guilt or bending their backs under the load of trying to work their way to heaven but never getting there. The troubling word is this word, let their table. What does that mean? I got to go fast here. My time's running out. So, what's this table? I believe what Paul is praying using Psalm 69. God, the enemies of your son Jesus Christ, let their table, their blessings... The table represents lots of food, good times, security, the family, everything's good... God, let their security, their food, their blessings, this represents the blessings, let those become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? What Paul is saying against his own people, because of chapter 10, verse 21, where God stands out all day long, but they're stubborn and disobedient, Paul says, let the things that are the blessings of the nation of Israel that should have led them and pointed them to Christ, let them be the actual things that end up causing them to snare and have a trap and to stumble and to fall. You say, Jeff, you still lost me. Instead of being drawn to Christ by having the scriptures and having the temple and all of the things that it represented and symbolized and how all those sacrifices pointed to Christ and how they had this Passover and we're God's special people and they had this special calling. Here's what they did. This is so important. The Jews let their knowledge of being the chosen people as a whole cause them to totally bypass the need and miss the need for individual faith. We're the chosen people. I don't have to have individual faith. I'm a Jew. I've got Abraham's blood in me. I make it. Have you ever trusted the promise of God for yourself? No, no, no. My great, 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 great. Same thing in here. If you think because mama or daddy or granddad or whoever is a Christian, you're going to get in. You will not. It's individual faith. Jews missed it. What was a blessing? You're called. You're special. You got the patriarchs. Jesus was a Jew. You know what they do? then I don't have to have individual faith. And yet chapter 10 is so clear. You must believe it is essential to salvation. It's essential to salvation. Next note, I think it's on the back of your handout, maybe. I'm not sure. Man's individual faith is a must. It's a must. But... Would you go with me back to chapter eleven? Look with your eyes at verse five. Did y'all? I gotta reiterate this. This is important. To go to heaven, you you must believe in Jesus, on Jesus. You must do it. If you never do that, you will not go to heaven. So, verse five. You say, Jeff, faith then? Jeff, faith is foundational. Yes, it is foundational. It is as, faith is as foundational as this floor I'm standing on there. I didn't want to stand up there because that's a raised up platform, right? Faith is as foundational as this. You have to have it. But there is something more foundational than faith. You say, what's more foundational than faith? Verse 5, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. Write this down. Go home and digest this. Read it five times till you, till you understand it. Not just can say it till you understand it. Grace precedes faith and grace allows faith. Grace comes first. Grace allows the faith. Grace precedes faith. But don't we have to have faith? You have to have it. But grace is bigger, more foundational, bigger underneath. It's the ground underneath this floor. Much more important. Though not important, faith is not important. Yes, it is. Grace, much more. Grace precedes faith. Grace allows faith. Give me a moment to explain this. Here's my attempt. Verse 5. I want you to get everything from the scripture. Look at the last three words of verse 5. Chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. Follow. Do not go into a drunken stupor, do not go into spiritual drowsiness focus verse 5 chosen by grace notice what paul does not say paul does not say chosen by their faith he does not say chosen by their faith let me explain they were chosen by grace chosen by grace before their faith not because of their faith chosen by grace the idea before faith here's my illustration picture a magician right? And I don't mean a sorcerer. I mean just somebody doing tricks, right? So they got seven or eight cups, and they got a little red ball, okay? They got a little red ball. Everything's good. And they're whipping the cups all around, and here's the rule. There's eight or ten or fifteen people standing there watching this, and they're trying to figure out, and here's this challenge. If anybody can tell me and figure my trick out and figure out under which cup the ball is, I'm going to give you $20. Now, I'm not going to give it to you if you get it once, right? Anybody can get lucky. Yeah, it's number two. or number, Everybody's going to say it at one point. But if somebody gets it like twice without missing, you figured my trick out, I'll give you $20. Listen. A magician giving the $20 bill to the first person to figure out his trick is very different than giving $20 to someone for no reason. No reason. Hey, excuse me. I want to give this to you. Oh, what's that for? No reason. You want me to wash your truck, right? No, no, no no reason. I just, just want to give it to you. That's different than, uh, it's cup number seven. Cup seven. Now uh, you got it. it's good. That's good. Let's see if you can do it again. All right, which cup's it under? Numbers call out. Boom, boom, boom. Same guy. It's under two. Two. You sure? You sure it's number two? Positive. Ah, yeah, it is number two. All right, good job, man. You got me. You say, Jeff, what does this have to do with anything? Listen to the next sentence Salvation does not go to those smart enough to solve God's riddle, it's a free gift. I have about 20 paragraphs in my notes. You see this? Got about 20 paragraphs. This next five-line, five-sentence paragraph, I would say more than that, is the most important one outside of reading the text. If you miss this, you will miss it. Grace. Look at verse 5. So to the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here comes. This is important. What does grace mean, Jeff? Here it is. Grace, you say, it means gift. Right? You just illustrated the magician. Here's $20 for no reason. Yes, get it. Grace not only means gift. I'm going to say it a slightly different way. Grace means God does not have to do it. Digest that. I'm going to say it again. Grace means God does not have to do it. God does not have to do it. We're talking, I know we're talking about this subject. I want to illustrate this. I've put down a few things. Help me uh, just answer inside your head. Does God have to make everyone a millionaire? Does God owe it to us? Come on, you're God. You've got the power. It's just money. You should, as God, come on, it's on you. You should make us all millionaires. Does God have to make people millionaires? You hear that Say no, he absolutely doesn't. Does God have to give people good health? No. Does God have to give people good marriages? No. Does God have to give people fulfilling jobs and careers? No. Can God give someone one of those things? Can someone be a millionaire with poor health and a bad marriage and a job they hate? A lot of people that way. Can somebody maybe go two out of four? A millionaire with a good marriage, bad health, hate the job. He can. Can God give someone all four? Yes. Can God give someone none of the above? They're not a millionaire. They have terrible health. They're in a horrible marriage and they hate their job. And you're like, that's me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm none of those. Okay, listen. God doesn't have to do it. Only when you understand that will you even begin to understand election. Only then will you begin to receive election. Only then will you be able to embrace it. That's like embrace. I'll never embrace it. I'm dancing around it. If you ever get a hold of this concept. Guys, by the way, no one here who knows a thing about the Bible would say God has to do millionaire, health, marriage, job, job. He doesn't have have to do anything. But watch, when it comes to salvation, we make a new rule. God, if you do it for number one over here, then you have to do it for all of them. If you have anything to do with it, and they end up, then you have to do it for all. Here's what helped me, because I fought this. I did not like this. Here's what helped me. I had to form a new baseline. It's a Bible baseline, and here it is. The proper Bible baseline is all deserve judgment. Period. That's when I finally realized and stopped just saying that and I understood, Jeff, come on, buddy. All deserve judgment. When that light went on more than words and became something I, biblically, it's like all through the scripture, God doesn't have to do it. If he has to do it, it is no longer grace. It's an obligation. God doesn't save by obligation, and so the ramification of that is this. Only when it's seen that all deserve judgment for our sin, only then is grace properly seen as something God need not do. He need not do it. He doesn't have to do it. In fact, we'll go so far as to say it. At that point, when you understand that, then you realize God is free to judge all, period. Period. Could stop. God is free to judge all for our sin. We're all deserving. That's the baseline. And or, when that's understood, then you can have a chance to believe this. He's free to judge all or he is free to give grace to any he chooses. And even only those he chooses. And if that strikes you as, no, he can't do that. Okay, then you don't have grace. You have something else. You have a different version of grace. I briefly want to do something I've talked about before. I'm going to go a little, little, deep, little deeper in it for a moment. There are different opinions on this doctrine. Here's one. Here's one. Election foreknowledge. Deny it. Hey, what are your thoughts on election foreknowledge? I've been talking about that down there at Graceview. What are your thoughts? I don't believe it at all. You're okay, but what do you do? How do you define? I don't, even, I don't even acknowledge them. No, I just. And here's 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 the clue. If I believe that, then that would mean. And all these things that they think up in their head. That would mean this. And I have all these logical things that that would mean. So to, I just totally deny it. Here's another one. This one's more popular. Hey, man, what are your thoughts on election, foreknowledge, predestination, all that stuff? I don't even, I don't even want to talk about it. What do you mean? No, but like when you read it, I, I skip those sections. I'm that one that wishes he would have just jumped in verse 11 today. I just skip it. I ignore it. Now, here's a third view, and I want to spend a moment on this because I'm going to be honest with you. I have respect for these people because they don't ignore and they don't deny. They honestly, like, you can't ignore it. can't deny it. So we need to come up with what does that mean, and here's their solution. It's a common one, but it's not as common as ignoring. Here comes. You ready? Look back at verse 2. Look at verse 2 in your Bible. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Verse 7, the elect obtained it. Here's this version. You ready? Some people believe in a version of election. Here it is. Election based on foreknowledge. Election. It's in the Bible. And foreknowledge. I believe in election based on foreknowledge. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? Here it comes. This acknowledges election, but it honestly believes God elects, God chooses some to salvation on the basis of having, because he's omniscient, knows all things, on the basis of having prior knowledge, they will choose him. Say it again. Election, yes, it's in there, of course, many times. Based on foreknowledge. God, since he knows everything, he knows who will believe in him. And based on his prior knowledge of who will, believe, who will believe in him, he then chooses and elects them. It's this. Since you will choose me, Jeff, 1979, you're going to do that. Oh, by the way, I know you haven't been born yet. I haven't even created mankind yet. But because I know what will happen in what you guys will call 1979 there in North Carolina, I choose you. I challenge you to think that through because here's what happened. If that's the case, that makes God weak. That makes God respond, react to our actions. Here's God. Since I know in my omniscience, I'm, I'm all-knowing. I'm not all-powerful. I'm not very powerful, but I know a lot. And since I know that you're going to choose me, I choose you. See, I choose you. I've chosen. I've elected you. And I'm not meaning to say this smart aleck way. I'm trying to be sincere here. If that's the case, then that makes God small, reacting to our actions. We're the actors. He's the reactor. He's going to do what he does because he knows what we're going to do. If that's the scenario, I propose to you this. We become the deciders. What that means is there's something in us that attracts God to us. That something is faith. That one has it, that one has it, and that one has it, and the others don't. And I'm attracted to you that have the faith. And so since you're going to believe in me, I elect you. Quotes, I choose you. I promise you. I challenge you. Correct me. Scripture never implies chosen by faith. Never. Chosen by their faith. They were elected because of their faith. Never. It is always chosen by grace or chosen according to the will and purpose of God, which is election in that. Never is it chosen because you're going to have faith. Find it and show it to me. You will not find it. John Piper words it this way. This is, this is a good way to put it. Please, answer this in your head. He says, if God asks someone in heaven, picture someone in heaven, and God asks them, why did you and not your sister believe in Christ? Hey, come here. Yeah. Lord, me? Yeah, I'll never talk. Why did you and not your sister believe in Christ? He says, No one will ever say, I guess I was smarter. I guess I was wiser. Now, this one, why did you and not your sister? That's a lot of people. Guess I had a spiritual streak. Said no one ever, ever will. What will happen? Why you and not... Lord, only you know that. You gave me the faith. It was your grace. Thank you. That's the answer. I have a serious question. This is not to win a point. I challenge all of us to answer this question, this series of questions. The same question a few ways. Watch. If all that is meant, I'm being sincere, if all that is meant by foreknowledge and election is that God in His omniscience knows who will and who will not believe in Christ, and on the basis of that knowledge, He chose or elected those that will believe, if that's all it is, here's my question, why even say that? Why even say that? God knows everything. He knows who will you want. You are the wills. It's not many of you, but there's some. I choose you because I know you. If that's all it is, why even say it? Really. Why make these statements? What's gained? Why play that game? That's a game. Was God feeling small in that process? And I've got to interject myself and kind of push my chest out. I'm choosing you! But Lord, you're only doing it because we're really... I know, but I've got to feel part of it. Is that what's happening? Because if that's the case, here's my question. Why not just say here, why not just say this? God offers salvation, and He knows all things before they happen even who will believe. Stop right there. Just do that. God offers salvation. Now, I know everything, so I know what's going to happen. I know who. I'll tell you right now, if that's all it said, that opens a whole lot of questions, then why, if you know this, why do you even make, oh, we better not go there, but ah, that, that offers some questions. But my question is, why the whole he chose, he elected, why that game? My question is, why use language, God, that you know will make some of us think what we think? Must be more to it. And there is. Scripture points it out. So I finish today appealing to the Scripture. The point today, the third point is, scriptural proof of election You say, Jeff, you didn't even pull up the verses out of these 10. It's all through these 10 verses. But join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go fast. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to invite anyone who's going to make an honest attempt to understand this, and myself included. This was one of the passages that kind of whipped me. Maybe it'll whip you. It's slightly technical, but I, I think if you just put them side by side, read it, be honest, you'll see it presents some real dilemma to the election based only on foreknowledge theory. Verse 1, watch what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Court Verse 2, he tells where their exiles at. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, to those who are elect, exiles. Verse 2, according to. He does not say known by the foreknowledge of God the Father. He says elect, verse 2, according to. I'm not damaging the sentence. I'm being honest. Check me out. Look at it grammatically, spiritually, historically, every way you want to. To those who are elect... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And if you look at that and say, I see what you're saying, it's a little tricky. It looks like it's saying according to the foreknowledge, like the foreknowledge caused the election and is equal to the election. Uh, But I still think it's just he knows in advance. All right, if you hold that, then flip over to verse 18. Flip over to verse 18, same chapter. So elect according to the foreknowledge, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed. Ransomed, that means we're bought with something, yes. Knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, sin. Not with perishable things, such as silver and gold. God did not use money to buy you out of sin, verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ bought you with his blood, not with money, verse 20. Talking about Christ. He was foreknown, Wait, 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 wait. Verse 1, elect according to the foreknowledge. Verse 20, that's the who are the elect according to the foreknowledge. Verse 20 says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He's the one who ends up buying you. Hold on, what, what verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. How do you look at verse 20? Is this what you say? Yeah, God knew Jesus would die on the cross. Is that all you see? God knows. God's omniscient. He knows what will happen to Jesus. But he's not really doing any of it. If that's what you see, then lastly, look at Acts 2. Acts 2. By the way, the same Greek word there. The foreknown, the elect are foreknown the same way Christ was foreknown. Acts 2, verse 22, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. Y'all know this to be true? That's what he's saying. Mighty works, wonders, signs God did through him in your midst. These aren't tricks. He did them right in the middle of you. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to, not just allowed by, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men flip over to chapter 4 flip over to chapter 4 verse 27 prayer meeting here's what the christians pray For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Why are they all coming against Christ? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here's my point. This will be on your handout. God foreknew the elect, chose the elect, Because he foreordained them just like he foreknew about Christ and all that would happen to Christ because he foreordained it to happen to Christ. Nothing there caught God off guard. God was using the whole thing. And you hear that? And I know what I do. Here's one of my questions. If that's the case, then it looks like God's responsible for sin because what we did to Jesus was sin. It was all part of the plan of God. And I don't understand it, but I know God is not the author of sin. God does not like sin. I know God is strong enough and wise enough. He can take sin, turn it around, and get glory to himself and save a whole nation of people. As we killed the Son of God, God turns it to his own glory, saves a multitude There's a lot of different views on this. So for that reason, my advice to you is do not take my position just because it's my position. Listen, don't take my word for it. You say, well, Jeff, you've kind of had the bully pulpit up there for an hour. We haven't had a chance to respond. We need to have like the democratic response to, okay, sorry. We can have this conversation. I'm going to have some questions for you. And I'm going to present you a couple of sheets that I'm going to finish with in a moment. So, don't take my word for it. But now, here's the second part of that advice. Ready? Don't take your word for it either. Appeal to Scripture. With something so impactful as this, be sure, here's important, be sure your view does not stem from human logic. And here's how you'll tell it in your heart, here's what you say. But if, if that's true, then that would mean, and here's another word I just can't imagine God, dot, dot, dot. dot. Right, that's the problem. We like to imagine God instead of saying, God, your word says that. I don't like it. Uh, I don't understand all that. But this is what he says. Second piece of advice in this would be here. Make sure you have much Bible to support your view and not a, a sentence or a phrase. I have equal questions. God, why would you word the way you word in First Timothy two four, you desire all men to come to repentance, Lord. You know what that makes us think, and that verse very easily I think describe and explains Second Peter three nine. God's long suffering to us, word us, and is not willing that any should perish. He's not. He's long suffering to us, written to the elect. First Peter. To those who've obtained like precious faith, that one is not that hard for me. 1 Timothy 2, 4, but you desire all men to come to rest. Lord, why would you word it that way? Because that makes us think certain thoughts. But then I have this like mountain of things. God, look at all that you say here. And so I'd say when you're making your analogy, watch out for this trap. I like these attributes of God. And so when I'm evaluating it, I just can't imagine that being true with a God that, and here's my list, and a Bible, but wait a minute, what about all these other? I, I don't want to think about those. These are my favorite attributes of God. Be careful. We don't get to pick and choose. I wish I had these references. If you want to fly through them, write them down, you'll see the verses. Better yet, if you would like a copy of these, I will offer them to you. Say, I want to study this more. This is literally a sample. Off the top of the head. Off the top of the head. I did not get my, my Bible that I did a study one time. I did not get my MacArthur study Bible that I have a bunch of read. I literally off the top of my head popped out. I went through kind of John, Acts, Romans. Oh, you can't forget about that Ephesians. Let me read these. I'm reading them. What do you do with this? John 1, 12, and 13. Here we go. I'm finishing with a flurry. I appeal to Scripture. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him. See, Jeff, look, see, we have to receive him. It's us who believed. Yeah, see, it's us. You do have to believe, I agree. To all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority to become children of God, who were born, that means born again spiritually. Watch this phrase, not of blood. But I'm a Jew, that won't get you in. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But of God. No, no, no it's, it, it's, it's our will hold that thought we do have to call him our Lord and receive him as Savior. We must do that but if and when that happens it's by God John 6, after just saying you have to come to me you want to go to heaven, Jesus says you have to come to me oh by the way, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him You have to deal with these texts. If in your reading you come across these texts, please don't just skip over them. Read them thoughtfully. Deal with the implications. Acts 2.23, which we just read. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.39. Wrapping up the sermon at Pentecost, Peter says, for the promise, he's talking to his Jewish audience, it's for you and for your children and for all who are far off, not only far off geographically, but far off time-wise. They haven't even been born yet. The promises of a Messiah is for you. Watch the end of verse 39. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts five thirty-one. God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior. Why? To give repentance. To Israel and forgiveness of sins. Who's giving? you mean repentance? Is a gift? Faith? Changing our thought, which affects our life, our life change? Yes, God gives Jesus Christ gives repentance just like He gives forgiveness. Acts eleven, eighteen, talking about the Gentiles. I'm gonna fly. Keep watching. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Okay, Peter, I guess you did. God worked in your life. You had to do what he said. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts Acts 13, verse 16 and 17. Paul stands at Antioch and Pisidia on the first missionary journey. So Paul stood and motioning with his hands. Hey, shh, everybody listen. Men of Israel, he's in the synagogue. And you who sit in the back who fear God. You Gentiles who are trying to get in on it. Listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Acts 13, 48. I beg you, please deal with this. When you find out the answer to this that weakens election and foreknowledge, please let me know what you come up with because this is a strong one. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, yay, we are included, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. What do you do with that? As many, he preached to all of them, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Election for knowledge drives faith, allows faith. As many as were appointed, King James says, ordained to eternal life. They're the ones who believe. Acts 16, keep moving, verse 14. One who heard us, Paul Luke says, was a woman a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Watch what the verse says. The Lord opened. I might be have lost my still on. The Lord opened her heart. Guys, I'm gonna propose to you that's the opposite of hardening. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Acts 18 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Through grace, they believe. Romans 9. I don't think I can read all of that. Verse 10. You see that? Y'all remember that section? Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Later on he says, I'll have compassion, mercy on whom I want to, and I'll harden who I want to. I don't understand it all. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 and 11, I have those verses.